Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. This is New Books in Science. I'm Maya Wolner, your podcast host for today. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Howard I. Kushner this morning. Dr. Kushner is the Nat C. Robertson Distinguished Professor of Science and Society Emeritus at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He is also the John R. Adams Professor of History Emeritus at San Diego State University. As a historian of medicine and neuroscience, his areas of research include Tourette's syndrome, suicide, and left-handedness. He is the author of a number of books, including A Cursing Brain, The Histories of Tourette's Syndrome. Today, we'll be talking about his most recent book, On the Other Hand, Left Hand, Right Brain, Mental Disorder and History, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2017. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Science today, Professor Kushner. Thanks for having me, Maya. Appreciate it. My first question is, what inspired you to write this book? Well, as we used to say in psychiatry, it was overdetermined. On the one hand, I was left-handed, and my mother was also left-handed, but forced to switch to right-handedness when she was a child. And so um, I always wondered what was why why was I left-handed, and then later, or why was anyone left-handed for that matter? And then later, when I was working on um, Tourette syndrome, I worked in a clinic at Brown uh, Hospital at Brown University Memorial Hospital of, of uh, Brown and pediatrics uh, pediatric. Uh, movement disorder clinic. And I noticed that a, a large number of our patients seemed to be left-handed um, and and they had this disorder. So I immediately thought there must be some connection. And I began to get my colleagues in the clinic to take down information, ask whether their patient was left or right-handed. No one ever thought to do that. And we did a very small study and it looked like there was a connection. Uh, it turns out there really isn't, but it got me interested in the, looking at left-handedness and, and learning disabilities. And it turned out that almost every learning disability you could think of had been attached to left-handedness by somebody someplace along the line or was still being actively uh, looked at that way. So it got me to look more carefully at um, how these connections were made, how the studies were done, what were the mechanics of them, what, di- what kinds of... Uh, uh, in, inventories in this case that people use to determine if someone was left or right-handed. 
So uh, what seemed to be a simple question at first became very complex. I think that really comes through actually in your book, that's for certain. Um, in your preface, you mentioned that you were interested in writing a history of left-handedness as it relates to disability studies. And I was wondering how have the methods and motivations of that discipline helped you better understand left-handedness? Well, I think very much my work is sort of disability studies, although when I began working in this direction, especially when I was working on Tourette syndrome, I hadn't thought about making the connection explicitly. And then there was an article in the American Historical Review about the history of disability studies and history, and, and there was a long discussion in my book on Tourette syndrome, so I realized I was, in fact, in disability studies. More important, um, the... Um, Left-handers were assumed to be, uh, because there was discrimination against them for so long in human history, they were assumed to have a variety of disorders because they were left-handed. And what I was trying to look at was, the, did the, did the um, disabilities attached to left-handedness come from being left-handed, if it were true? And secondly, or was it the result of the intervention that was used throughout human history and, and in, in the West until really the 1950s, which was to switch uh, left-handers to be, use their right hands for writing and other tasks. And then that that in itself could have a, a negative effect on being left-handed. So there was this long debate in the literature, the more deeply I got into it, about whether left-handed it's, left itself was a kind of proxy um, or condition related to learning disabilities uh, and disabilities in general, or was it... Um, the intervention that, that caused the um, disability. And then beyond that, um, the way the history of attitudes toward left-handedness was very much like the history of any other disability study. And so uh, I guess I had been wrapped up in thinking this way without articulating it first and then being more self-conscious about it by the time I was reading the, writing the book. Yeah, that's certainly very fascinating. Before we get into the different kinds of disabilities um, that were linked to left-handedness, let's first start uh, with chapter three, which I thought was a very interesting chapter where you write about the different measures for left-handedness. And I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners the different ways in which left-handedness is established and what the challenges are in measuring it through these different methods. Right. One would think it would be very simple. You just pick out someone, see what hand they use, and then you're their left hand. And if they use the right hand, then they're right-handed. But it doesn't work that way. Um, it turns out that um, there are very different definitions for left-handedness in lots of different societies and then throughout. So there's no real agreement, oddly enough, on um, what constitutes left-handedness. And the way it's generally done in the West um, was through two survey inventories, one called the Annette Survey Inventory and the other called the Edinburgh or Oldfield. And what they do is they have a list of 10, um, 10 or 12 uh, ways people might report. So do you, do you eat with your left hand? Do you write with your left hand or your right hand? Do you, um, in one of these, which hand do you strike a match? It's a sort of old um, um, inventory, but it's still there. So there's a little anachronistic. So it turns out that if you have 10 of these things that you use your left hand for, you're strongly left-handed. And if you have 10 of these things that you only use your right hand for, then you're strongly right-handed. And then there's everything in between. It's the stuff in between, right, um, that becomes problematic because a lot of studies take um, a, a number of other studies. They do what's called a meta-analysis. They'll put a whole bunch of different studies together 
and then have a large enough number to make some statistical claim. The trouble is that not all of the studies use the same criteria um, for determining what they want to use. They don't all use this inventory. Some just say, you know, which hand do you use? So there's self-reporting, which is notoriously uh, um, misleading. But beyond that, since the tendency had always been through human history and, st and still in most of the world today to determine left-handedness by what culturally that people should or shouldn't use their left hand for. So for instance, eating in some, some places where writing is not central to the culture or, or to the behaviors, um, throwing. So, so when you have all these, these different things, there's no real reliability when you have done, do a whole bunch of, th of things. And then there's two other really, um, daunting problems, which is since, so much of the population is sh is shifted. When you ask if someone's left or right-handedness, and you're trying to figure out if there's a genetic link, well, the, is the answer, um, I use my left hand now, or I, I, I was forced to change my left hand, so I'm really right-handed. I'm, I'm really left-handed, not right-handed. Um, and then since this happens in early childhood, not everybody remembers what they were, and it's hard to know what the right answer is. Added to that is the discrimination against left-handedness means that in many societies, um, left-handedness has such a negative or uh, connotation, uh, sometimes associated with the profane as opposed to the right hand being the sacred, that it's underreported. So, for instance, I have a chapter, uh, a discussion in this chapter about the Chinese um, reporting of left-handedness, which they, uh, until the 1980s, reported to be 0.23 of a percent, which would make it the lowest possible, almost zero percent of um, of left-handers in society, so um, so there's this there's a cultural restriction, there is a actual memory restriction. So it's really hard to um, to say what you know what's the right way we can determine left-handedness. And as we see later on in my book, when people begin to do research and it doesn't turn out that left-handers are the or turn out to be associated with the disability they thought they might change the definition of left-handers to make it more inclusive so they may as some studies do come up with a criteria called non-right-handedness but since there's no set basis of how you figure that out um, it becomes sort of arbitrary and um, although these people aren't trying to um, distort their data they are um, they are trying to find some relationship between handedness and, uh, and these disabilities, and that can be done sometimes by changing the definition of what constitutes handedness itself. So I noticed in your book that you actually reproduced the old field uh, survey, and I tried to do it my, myself, actually, and was very interested to find that I responded left-handed for two questions and eight eight questions I was right-handed, and I tried to just go with my gut sense of how I respond. Um, so this brings up the question, in order to be right or left-handed, do you have to get a 10 out of 10? And then, you know, if you are somewhere in between, like you mentioned previously, I'm interested to know about ambidexterity and if it really exists or if it's just the sort of, you have to be determined in one way or another. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit also about the British ambidexterity movement, which I found quite fascinating. Sure. Um, when it comes to the, the survey inventory, that's what you're, you start off with. You can see in the, uh, I think it's on page 32 of the book, you, you see that they ask all these questions of which hand do you use to do certain things. So 10 out of 10 would make you strongly left-handed. Um, 10 out of 
10 out of 10 negatives, uh, 10 out of 10 positives that make you strongly right-handed. And then it's fair game in the middle. So it just depends on how many non-right-handed things people do that a study might decide to de- define that as what we're looking for, which is not necessarily strong left-handedness, but weak, weaker right-handedness. So you're relatively strong right-handed by the inventory. The thing is, um, you probably don't strike a match very often. No. And, right? and I don't use scissors a lot, mainly because I'm left-handed. And I um, and and sweeping I don't do with a broom very my much myself. That was my left-handed <laughs> response, actually. <laughs> so, so you know, it, it's it's it sort of gets arbitrary, and um, so some of those that some things that aren't there also are left-sidedness that these inventories don't do. So, for instance, I mean, people are either left or right ears. Yes, they're left or right footed, right? Um, so as a result, these things. You know, are not you know, normally left-handers are, are in theory make up about ten to twelve percent of the population, right? But when it comes to hearing, right, which is not on this inventory, it's about fifty-fifty. In other words, fifty percent are right-eared and fifty percent are left-eared. They they are one or the other, right? They're lateralized. In other words, there's one side that's dominant, um, and the same is true with footed. And then there's the advantage that comes from in the modern world. The Chinese being very strongly against left-handedness as a as a criteria until recently, when they discovered that ping pong players had a great advantage being left-handed, and all of a sudden the Chinese were pushing for ping pong players um, to be left-handed. And and even in in tennis today, there are certain tennis uh, professionals who have trained themselves to be left-handed, as hard as that may seem to be, because there's some advantage and surprise at being left-handed. So what used to be seen as a negative. Uh, trade is now seen as a positive one, and how do you measure what the what those people are? Are they when they learn to use their left their left hand to play tennis? Are they now considered left-handed, right? Um, and so, what time do we know? So, the other thing that makes it hard to count it is is that let's say that there is a gene for left-handedness, so no one's fine that people keep touting that they're almost there. But if there is, right, then you should be able to find the uh, that gene. <coughs> You know, early on in development being important, but actually we don't really, uh, children don't really generally choose their left or right hand until they're three years or older, uh, or almost three years or older. So as a result, um, when you uh, try to figure out if someone's left or right-handed, and if it turns out that the real key is before age three, well, we hardly ever do studies mm-hmm. with children under the age of three. So it makes it hard to get the right kind of population. So I really thought this would be a very simple thing to answer, mm-hmm. right? Why are there so many left-handers? What causes left-handedness? Done back to my other stuff. But it turned out the deeper I got in it, the more confusing it was. So, for instance, as you just asked before, what's ambidextrous? Well, does ambidextrous mean you can do everything with either hand? Mm-hmm. Or does it mean that you can do some things with one hand and some things with another? And if in studies they're all labeled some label one way as um, as ambidextrous and the other way is not ambidextrous. When you put them together, you don't have a mishmash of things. So there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not there really is a true thing called ambidexterity. But a lot of people certainly believe it. So, for instance, as you brought up before, at the turn of the uh, 19th to 20th century, there was a big movement in Britain 
and ultimately later in the United States, called the Ambidextrous Cultural uh, Society. And the argument is actually one of its leaders was the head of the Boy Scouts, Baden Powell. And it argued that if you could get people to use their left hand as well as their right hand, use both sides, then you get to both sides of your brain. And there was a lot of literature, there's a lot of argument about that. And, and some of the most uh, um, influential writers on handedness at the turn of the century took sides in this issue. Um, so, so, for instance, the British Boy Scouts, to encourage people to be ambidextrous, made them um, uh, shake hands with their left hand rather than the right hand. Yeah, that's very interesting. So for the sake of clarity, you, you've mentioned asymmetry and laterality. And I think maybe it would be good to let our listeners know, clarify what those terms mean um, in this context. And then also my second secondary question to that would be, could you also explain why uh, it has been so important for some researchers to link left-handedness and brain or cerebral laterality? Good, because they're both very much connected. Um, the first thing is, in the lingo of uh, people who do brain research, right, um, and, and just in general language, um, the term uh, laterality means what side is dominant. Right? Asymmetry is the fact that the both hemispheres of the brain are not exactly the same, right? In fact, almost nothing from proteins all the way up are, are um, symmetrical. Most things are asymmetrical, uneven. And so what you want to do when you're working in, uh, in, with, with um, handedness, the assumption, which may be a, a wrong assumption to begin with, is that you could look at the left hand, and that means that your dominance would be in your in your um right brain, right hemisphere, and your right hand's dominance is supposed to be in your uh, left hemisphere. But it turns out it's not true. In other words, only 18% of people who are categorized as left-handed turn out through now we have much better scanning techniques that aren't invasive, that they turn out only 18% are right brain instead of if it were really um, left is one side, right's the other, you would have 100%. And then 5% of right-handers are um, right-brained. Well, since there are many more right-handers than left-handers, that's 5% of a much larger number. So in just raw numbers, there are more um, uh, right-handed right-brainers than there are left-handed right-brainers. But in the popular press and in, in popular discussion, right, the assumption is, is that the left hand somehow or other um, is a proxy for the right brain, so you don't have to actually do the look at the uh, the cerebral hemisphere at all. But it's not true. My second, or sort of a follow up question to that would be then: Why is there so much cachet to have left brain dominance? Well, I don't know if there's that much cachet. I, mean, I don't know if there's cachet. Well, in the sense that certain kinds of um, attributes are linked to left right brain. Yeah. You know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, like drawing on your on your left side or drawing on your right side, stuff like that. Well. It's hard, it's hard to say why there is that much, but one of them is, is that you know, for years there's been so much discrimination, I mean, throughout hu human history, right? So much discrimination, and still in most of the cultures in the world, there's discrimination against left-handers or, or restrictions about what they can use their left hands for, that um, the pushbacks, when it came, right, came in the, in the notion that the left part of the 
the, the left-handers were in their right brains, which they're not necessarily, but let's just say they are, right? And therefore, the right brain is more creative, and therefore, left-handers are more creative, they're smarter. And so there have been these societies of left-handers that grow up. There's a famous store in Britain, and now they're all over the, you know, all over the, the Western world, and even in India, uh, they cater to left-handers. So part of the pushback against the discrimination against left-handers was the notion that they were superior um, in terms of talent. And there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that supports it, but when you actually do a study of large numbers of people, it doesn't support that. So I think the reason is, is that we're looking at the wrong thing, right? The right thing, the correct thing to examine would be that population, both right-handers and left-handers, who have dominance in the non, when the normally non-dominant um, hemisphere. So that would mean what we should be looking at is not left-handers or right-handers, but people who are right-brained in terms of language. I see. I see. So the the handedness is sort of a proxy way in which researchers have tried to access that, but it turns out through uh, various studies that that link is quite tenuous. So I want to talk a little bit about your discussion in chapter two, where you introduce uh, the readers to two figures who loom large in the history of left-handedness. That's the Italian criminologist Cesare Lombroso and the French anthropologist Robert Hertz, uh, both of whom were working in the 19th and early 20th centuries. I, I was wondering if you could recount this debate to our listeners and expand on why this intellectual dispute remains relevant or not uh, to the contemporary history of left-handedness. Yeah, it's actually my favorite chapter. <laughs> it's the one that's most history, I guess. Maybe that's why. Um, uh, Lombroso was the founder of um, modern criminology, and he had this. He led the, the, the large school uh, of followers in uh, Turin, in Italy, and um, he argued that as humans became more and more uh, civilized, from his point of view, remember we have a whole different attitude toward what we consider to be. Um, uh, the direction of, of cultures and movements, that, that right-handers, the more right-sided and right-handed the people were, the more advanced they were, right? And he argued that primitive people were left-handed, and he said, so were criminals, and he had, um, and left-sided. So he did, many of these studies were based on skull size, which was a big thing then. If you couldn't get to the brain the way we do now, you could put a bunch of, um, uh, BBs inside of a, a, a skull and, and measure the, the volume. So, and, and he looked at the visages of these people, what they looked like, and took pictures of them. And it turned out that people who, uh, who came from non-Western cultures, of course, the way that it was presented, were seen as more primitive. And primitivity was seen as, um, as more left-handed. Now, this isn't true at all, right? right? People were not... Right, but it became a central um, uh, argument of his. And but he said that these people were atavistic; they were throwbacks um, to previous generations of humans. And and Lombroso himself actually thought we really couldn't do anything about it. you couldn't change these people. So, but you should just essentially it led to this notion later on that Lombroso would not have endorsed, but which would come to haunt him, that these people should be eliminated. And, and and from a genetic point of view, that if you want to have fewer people right, who have this trait, then that's what you would do, assuming that it was a genetic thing and it was true. And on the other hand, there was this curious thing. Lombroso right, was 
um, descended from a very prominent Jewish family in Italy. And this is the time of anti-Semitism. It's, well, it's not the only time, but it's one of the strong you know, recurrences of anti-Semitism in the late 19th century, Italy and, in fact, France and all over Europe. And, and so um, when, he came, when it came to Jews, he said, well, look, he said, it's true these other people were criminals because they couldn't help it. But if Jews are ever criminals, it's because of discrimination against them. But you can see how someone could pick up the rest of the argument, the way people look, that their difference, their inability to be integrated in the society, as uh, how that was tied very much to anti-Semitism. On the other hand, um, um, Robert Hertz, um, who was French, um, wrote this long defense. He was a a student of Durkheim's, um, of left-handedness against discrimination of left-handers, saying that, Right. By doing this, you're, you're essentially taking people's half the brain and you're paralyzing them and they can't use it. And he said, even if there is a physical difference between left-handers and right-handers, right, we should look at the, what the benefit from getting rid of discrimination would be. From this point of view, of course, it was code for him to be talking about the Dreyfus affair and the, and the discrimination against um, Jews in France and, and, in fact, in Europe. And what he was saying was that, that it was no different to discriminate against left-handers than it was to discriminate against Jews, and the society would lose a great deal as a result of both. And this is not just a, just an attached this. He puts this in his letters to his wife. He uh, he decides he's a socialist, but he does, and he's he's a he's not he's against the Franco-Prussian War initially, but he was willing to go fight in World War One, um, even though he had done his service. Because as he wrote to his wife, Alice, he said that um, that not enough Jewish blood can be spread on the French soil, and that would show the patriotism of the French Jews. And he was uh, tragically killed when he was only 35 uh, on the, in the front um, of World War One in the Battle of the Marne. So you have these two strands, right? You have the left-handedness is, is a negative trait or left-handedness is a positive trait. And that's where the ambidexterity comes in. Use both of them. So we've been sort of talking around the fact of discrimination um, as well as the attribution of positive values to left-handedness. So let's really get into the discrimination aspect. Um, at various points in your book, you discuss how left-handedness has been linked to mental deficiency, learning disabilities, criminality, as in the case of Lombroso, femininity, homosexuality, uh, schizophrenia, autism, and psychosis. So I was wondering if you could um, give us, uh, your listeners, some ideas of how these links were made to various uh, qualities um, and who sort of advocated for that kind of negative view of left-handedness. Yeah, you know, there's, um, when you, if you look at the history of this, what you find is, and initially the discrimination is for religious or um, cultural or other reasons, but it's not seemingly from our point of view, scientifically based. What's interesting is, is the same discrimination was justified under a scientific basis in the early 20th century and later. Um, So the science didn't necessarily, you know, make people look more um, objectively at this, uh, at this difference. So, so given the strong undercurrent and belief and the strong cultural values and, um, for instance, if it takes a, like something like the Zulu in South Africa, if a kid, a child, persists in using his left hand, if it's being slapped and told not to do it, tied down, they'll take the child, they'll dig a hole 
um, and pour boiling water in and stick their left hand in it so they can't use their left hand anymore, which is pretty extreme. But the same sorts of things kept occurring. So what people were doing was assuming that um, that left-handedness was by itself, ipso facto, a disorder and it would manifest itself through any of these sorts of things, right? And um, so the dominant intervention in the early uh, 20th century, late 19th century, actually up until the 1950s, um, was to force people to be switched from left-handed to right-handed. Um, given the discrimination against left-handers um, in school, they were seen as they were seen as um, having more learning disabilities. Um, they were humiliated in class. In fact, it, it became self-fulfilling because of discrimination against these kids. They put a dunce cap on. Um, um, and I think in, in, I know in the book, I have many examples of this sort of thing. So, so it became, it, it, be, it looked as if it was left-handedness that caused this retardation because of the whole society's movement against uh, left-handers. But um, the, one of the things most associates, just one example that the book talks about autism and all the other sorts of things, but, but one thing that was associated with left-handedness was that there were a lot of stutterers. And the assumption was, right, by one group of people that stuttering caused left-handed, uh, that, that left-handers were stutters because they were left-handed. But this one group of um, people who actually created um, modern studies of um, uh, of these disabilities, but particularly of stuttering at the University of Iowa, wondered what would happen if they took the stutters that they were treating, and it turned out most of them had been switched hands. Even some had been switched because they got polio from from left-handed, from right-handed to left-handed. What would happen if they switched them back to their original dominant hand? What would happen to their stuttering? So they did this. And it turned out, which I found to be absolutely amazing, right, that the stuttering went away as a result of their switching back. Um, one of the best examples of this um, is the, the King George VI, the famous movie, The King's Speech, which I'm sure almost everyone's seen. Um, and that what's not emphasized enough in the, um, in the movie, in the film, is that the king was, when he was uh, between six and seven, was forced to switch from his right hand to his left hand. Um, and, and then his stuttering developed. And although he still continued to do some things with his left hand, but the interesting thing in the film that isn't explained as fully as it might be is that when you put earphones on the king and he can't hear himself speak and he just has to read from a text, he doesn't stutter. And that's because what stuttering in part is, is this is a slow transmission, just a millisecond, right, from when from what you speak to what you hear. And so stutterers continue to hear what they just said, so it's hard for them to get on to the next word, but if they can't hear it. So that suggests that stuttering has a lot to do with hemispheric dominance and, uh, and the inter interference of what might be a natural sort of selection for the, a particular person. Um, in terms of autism, as one example, or attention deficit or um, um, schizophrenia, I'll, I, I'll give you a a very simplistic but uh, not misleading way this is related. So, for instance, in autistic children, or children with autism, sorry, um, in children with autism, and there's a big spectrum from very severe disorder to um, just shyness, maybe, 
um, that in that spectrum, um, what you have is over focus, right? On, on one side, hyper dominance, really. And in, in kids who have severe autistic disorder, they can sit and watch something all day long. They, they cannot contextualize what they, what they see. And one of the things that's sometimes uh, attached to autism is the inability to have empathy. So, so in a way, autism is kind of hyper-focused. And it's a simple way to put it, all right? But it at least shows a way how you think about it. But whereas you have attention deficit, there is no dominance. And dominance is really important, right? But not hyper-dominance. And so in attention, um, people with attention deficit disorder, the, both hemispheres seem to be um, um, non-dominant. And so the lack of dominance, and if severe, that one might explain um, some schizophrenias as well. I hope that makes sense. No, no, that's very fascinating. Um, I was also very surprised to hear about the uh, reconverting uh, young students back to their original dominant hand actually decreased decreased stuttering. I thought that study was extremely fascinating. Um, I was wondering, actually, though, in the context of maybe Western Europe and North America, when the practice of actually retraining left-handedness into right-handedness really got off the ground. Well, you know, I thought when I started this and started looking at it, that it would be like the 1920s or 30s. And I was interested in this, of course, because my mother had been switched and she had certain learning disabilities as a result. Um, but it turns out every time I would give an interview about these uh, stutters being switched over, and especially if I were doing one, a talk show thing, all these people would call up and say, well, this happened to me in like 1950. And I had those ones of Western Europe and in in France with people born in the 1960s. And so it went away slowly and not entirely. And it's still in the West, although now it's no longer, it's almost disappeared. It's not disappeared among immigrants to um, migrants to Western countries from more traditional societies. And so if you want to see where the, the discrimination against handedness is, it's still in the United States among certain immigrant families. But one of my key um, um, interviews is with this guy who was born in the 1960s, whose father was a pediatrician who forced him to switch and who, as a result, stuttered. And um, So um, the prejudice is still there. But and, and if you go out of the West, then it's at least 10% of the population of the world is probably being discriminated against, which has certain kinds of effects. It's, it's the discrimination that causes the disability rather than the disability that causes the rather than the disability that causes the, the, the other, uh, rather the, the handedness that causes the other disability. I think that's a very important insight. Um, let's talk about the positive values now that have been attributed to left-handedness, including creativity, genius, talent. You know, you know, our famous list of left-handers includes people like Barack Obama, Leonardo da Vinci. So I was wondering, is there a long history also of the opposite of attributing positive values to left-handedness, or is this a backlash against, um, you know, millennia of discrimination? I think mainly the latter, but not entirely. I mean, there are, as I have in the book, there are people, right, who, uh, right, there are people, um, correct, right, uh, who um, who saw this as a, as a negative thing, right? In ancient Greece, there were some people, there was Lao Tzu in China, but the, the, so from time to time, there are people that rise up or have some other vision of left-handedness, but it's certainly minority. And, and, 
and even where it's positive, it's sort of fudged a little bit. So really, historically, humans have seen left-handedness as a negative trait right, and acted on it through most of human history. Now, and so one interesting thing we might be able to say, though, is that where the discrimination against left-handedness um, is less than, than in some other societies, it's a, almost a barometer over the way people treat diversity. So the willingness to see left-handedness as a legitimate form of um, human behavior um, probably reflects a particular society's values in terms of difference to begin with. And I, I have some examples in the book about uh, different traditional societies where, and some where they try to get people to no longer be left-handed through positive reinforcement and others that are negative. And the ones that are more negative uh, are more negative against any kind of difference in their society. That's really interesting. So let's move into the later 20th century. I was wondering if you could uh, explain to our listeners what the Geschwind hypothesis is and why it was important in the 1980s. Yeah, Norman Geschwind was probably the most important and influential neurologist of the mid-century, and his students are still out there practicing. And um, by all accounts, he was brilliant. And he had already created a whole new field called behavioral neurology, where he saw the relationship between behaviors not as um, psychodynamic, but rather as neurological. Um, but when it came to, to looking at handedness, he, um, he argued that, um, that normally in utero, right, there's a slow, slower development of um, the uh, left side. And as a result, uh, um, uh, different kinds of abilities slowly develop in terms of response. But also what he argued was that, that some kind of insult in utero, right, and depending on when it took place in utero, Right, would have effect of sort of flipping around the developmental areas so that the thymus where work again the thymus which works against infection and and immunity um, would develop slowly so it would be effective but if it was if it was forced up by some other area then then as a result there could be more deficits and in particular he argued this way that normally Left-handers are more males than females, despite the fact that other people in other ages have always sensed a female um, uh, behavior, but of course it's not. And the reason is he attached it to testosterone, right? Because testosterone, an extra shot of testosterone in a male in utero um, might slow down the development of the immune system. So he argued that, that these um, disabilities that are seen with left-handers come from the fact that um, there's been something that's affected their um, ability to, to develop normally in terms of immune response and also in terms of handedness and also in terms. So he would say that handedness, right, was kind of a marker um, but he would for, for these disabilities. But he began to change his mind as he um, looked at this more carefully. But he had attached to studies a variety of immune disorders and learning disabilities to in utero um, insults. And so it was very influential. It, when, he, when he published this work with his two colleagues, uh, Galliberta being one of them, that 
that it got an incredible amount of publicity and sort of pushed everything else out of the order because it, it, ha- it gave an environmental explanation um, for handedness where other people have been trying to get research funded looking at genetic or- or- origin of handedness. Maybe just for the point of comparison, you can explain what a genetic model is for our listeners. Sure. A genetic model is that there's some abnormality inherited uh, abnormality or difference um, that leads to to left-handedness. So people have looked for, is there a gene, right? And they do that through pad- pedigree. So in other words, you take large populations of families and you look back and you see, you know, was the grandfather left-handed? Was the grandmother left-handed? What side was left-handed? Right. And it does turn out that when you look at, at, at handedness, that if one of your parents is, is left-handed, you have a 19% chance of becoming left-handed, which is much higher than if um, both your parents are right-handed, which is like under um, under 9%. So that suggests a recessive gene. In other words, a gene that's passed down over time. And then the question is, how do we find it, right? And so people try to find it by looking at uh, other animal models where there's asymmetry. In other words... You know where one, um, where they are they left or right sided? Now it may seem silly to think about this, but if you take but rats or you know, laboratory mice are fifty fifty uh, left and right handed. In fact, all animals pretty much are fifty fifty. And if you just take the the mice that are left pawed, and you just mix them with other left pawed mice, you still get fifty fifty. So. Um, so you try to see what it is, right, that makes this change in a in an animal, or in some cases, in a, even a snail, or what's you know, the direction of uh, of movement of the cilia in the in the around the organs of the body or in, within the body itself. And so people try; they can't find the uh, the a gene for left-handedness itself. So they're trying to look for a candidate gene. That would be tied to something that's looked that looks at asymmetry, right? So if so, if you could find this gene, that if you remove it, gets rid of the asymmetry and makes symmetry, right? Then you, you know you should be able to then move that up to humans. But so far, um, the studies have not been able to do that. Although from time to time there are claims that someone has found the candidate gene. So I read in your book that about 10 to 12% of the human population, uh, the human species has been left-handed. And this was sort of measured in the context of since the Stone Age. Um, And that really struck me and impressed me as a statistic. And I was wondering how that kind of number was established for such a long period of time when we would have only had, obviously, archaeological remains of humans from such a long time ago. Yeah, it does seem odd, doesn't it? But it actually, it's not so odd because uh, handedness has been determined back back to Neanderthals um, by looking at cave paintings is one thing, hand tracings. So if the left hand is the traced hand, right, then the person doing the tracing is most likely right-handed. And if you look at the tracings through, through back in the early, as, as far back as we can find these these tracings, right, it's about 90% right hand and 10% left hand. And then also because we've de- Develop much better techniques in archaeology. Um, tool looking at the way tools are shaped, whether they be work for a left-handed or right-handed, or even simple little things like just a hammer you'd hit on a on a rock to split it, right? 
what direction that would be. So it turns out that there is actually pretty good evidence that humans have been this way as so long as there have been homo sapiens sapiens and before. That's really interesting, a really interesting method to try and understand that. Um, so who, who is Michael Carballis and how would you describe his contribution to left-handedness? In a way, he's been the most consistent writer about left-handedness um, for the last half century almost. He's a New Zealand psychologist, widely respected, and his um, take on um, the, the causes of left-handedness um, very much reflect each time what the dominant um, methodological approach is, not just to um, handedness, but in general to the problems about behavior. And so Corbalis begins his career by writing a book um, called The Lopsided Ape. And in it, he essentially argues that humans are unique, that they have, the reason that they have, they're so asymmetrical when when it comes to language, when it comes to their hands, is because of language. Because language begins first with gesture. It's only found in humans, and it comes from human culture. And humans, although all animals um, uh, communicate, humans use this uh, system of metaphoric language, which is much more sophisticated. And as a result, handedness reflects brain dominance. And then what we talked about earlier about um, the, you know, the, the, those things that are dominant in the right hemisphere. Corbalis makes this argument, makes it very strongly through, reviews everyone else's work, is a very good critic of, of the limitations of different kinds of studies. But yet in the last um, half decade, he's now moved to the other side, arguing that um, that handedness actually is the result of a of of a gene rather than the result of the culture, rather than being uh, environmental, it's biological, and yet um, the the evidence that he uses isn't any different from the evidence he used before, but it's a new reading, a new interpretation of the same evidence, and trying to figure out why that's so, it seems to me that he people like Corbalis who are really good at what they do want to stay in where the action is, but if you want to stay where the action is in terms of um, uh, handedness, uh, and you want to do a big study and you want to check out whether it's genetic or not, if you don't do a genetic study, you're not going to get funded. And so, although I'm not saying that he's um, doing this because he doesn't believe in what he's doing, but it's just that that's the big ball game in town now is large studies of studies, meta-analyses, right, that take a lot of funding to do the study and uh, as a result, if you want to stay where the action is, you sort of have to move into genetics. And that's where we are right now. So the environmental arguments, even the ones uh, um, like Geshwin would make, are no longer in vogue. And this, yeah, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, this just, what I'm just trying to say in many, too many words is that, um, that what's going on is that, is that, that what, whatever the dominant skills are needed in terms of research, they influence um, what we look at as much as the things we look at influence the methodologies we use. Makes sense. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. It, it seemed to me when I read the anecdote or the the story about Lombroso and and Hertz that the dominant research binary is really between biology and culture, and it and it seems like you've just elaborated that the the biology argument or the biology practice is really the one that is at the forefront now of of left-handed research. But my question would be, can one ever actually disprove 
the environmental or the cultural explanation. No, and I think this goes to the heart of really what my take-home message of my book is. Everyone's looking for the cause of left-handedness, as if every left-handedness has only one cause, right? One gene, one culture. One, but it would seem to me there are many routes to get there. It's a syndrome. It's a collection of signs and and re- reports. You know, what, what hand you use, how left-handed you are. Um, what your childhood was like, what in utero was. So there's no reason to think that everybody becomes left-handed for the same reasons because not everyone is left-handed actually acts the same, right? And so we have to think of it like um, uh, like any other syndrome. When I worked on Tourette's syndrome, I don't think that there's a single cause of Tourette's syndrome either. Um, and for all those syndromes, like, think about pneumonia. You can have pneumonia and there are lots of ways you get pneumonia, right? So I think we have to stop looking for the single cause of left-handedness and understand that it's a complex result of culture and biology and go from there. Well, that seems like a good place to end our interview. Thank you so much for spending time with me today on New Books in Science to talk about your book. Thank you, Maya. This has been New Books in Science. Thank you for listening. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.